Thank you so much, Joanna, and thank you so much to the conference for inviting me uh, to be here today. Wow, I mean, what a day we've had already. Um, it's been extraordinary from Geordie talking about the power of food to evoke memory to Liam's astonishing, maybe dystopian. I don't know, I wanted to ask him whether he found it dystopian vision of the future. Alice's insights into design, incredible sessions in other rooms about body, well-being, happiness, who we are, you know, our future with a virtual uh, computerized universe and so on. Um, and I'm kind of going to hopefully in the next 30 minutes show you how all of these things are joined together um, and not only how they're joined together, but how we can use the lens of food, as Joanna kindly said in her introduction, um, to not only think about these things connectedly, but also make sense of them and actually act positively in the light of them. Um, so this is me in receipt of my, funnily enough, I mean, going back to George's talk, I couldn't speak when I got my book because I just had a voice operation. So I received it silently, which was quite an extraordinary feeling. Uh, and I've just come out of anaesthetic in this picture, which is why I look a bit kind of like this. Um, a bit like giving birth. And the, by the way, writing a book is the nearest thing I'm ever going to get to that. So um, I'll just have to run with that experience. But um, I wrote this book. I came out l the week the pandemic was declared, if you can imagine. Um, so quite momentous times and as you can see it's got it's a funny word and it's got a kind of ludicrous subtitle how food can save the world uh, but I actually do believe this uh, and I'm going to explain the funny word the funny word is Cytopia um, it's a word I made up about 15 years ago at the end of uh, the book that again Joanna kindly mentioned hungry city how to how to feed a city basically um, and I'll explain later why I came, why I went Greek with this word, but I just thought we need a word to describe the fact that we live in a world shaped by food. Um, and because I had discovered through researching what it takes to feed a city, uh, that everything in our lives is shaped by food. And that's really why I, you know, what I want to talk to you about today, but also why I believe food is such a powerful medium and connector through which we can make sense of the world and also change it for the better. Um, as you can see, it just comes from the Greek sitos, which is the Greek for food, and topos for place. Um, so what does that actually mean? Well, it means that we share a question, a common question, uh, which all humans have been facing, and indeed all living creatures face um, for hundreds of thousands of years, the question of how to eat. Now, all living things have to eat. And of course, what they eat is other living things. Food consists of living things that we either hunt or nurture and then kill and then eat so we can live. So food is basically life. That's the essence of the idea. Um, but of course, how you eat has profound effect on pretty much everything else we do. Now, I love this picture. Some of you may have heard of the Hadza of Tanzania, an extraordinary group of hunter-gatherers that's still one of the few remaining groups in the world that still live largely by hunting and gathering, as indeed, of course, all humans did until uh, roughly 12 to 15,000 years ago. Um, and we're talking a lot about technology at this conference. And for me, and not only for me, obviously, uh, for all of us, uh, one of the most momentous moments in our history was the discovery or the invention of how to control fire. And of course, as well as allowing us to modify the landscape, 
what the control of fire allowed us to do, or our ancestors to do rather, was to cook their food. Uh, and it's, it's a very fascinating story because basically hunting, if you think about it as a way of eating, it's very high risk because you can spend all day running after an animal and if you don't get it, then you've got nothing to eat. What the control of fire allowed our ancestors to do was to specialise in hunting because, uh, and this is obviously um, slightly contentious in terms of the gender, the genderization of this arrangement, but basically the men would go hunting and the women would stay in camp um, looking for tubers in the ground and cooking them so that when the men came back, even if they hadn't been successful, there was still a meal for everyone to eat. More importantly, and then they could go hunting again the next day, but more importantly and interestingly perhaps is the fact that the shared meal, which of course is what uh, our ancestors had every uh, evening around the fire, um, is arguably the oldest and to my mind also the most accurate and flexible economy that we've ever invented as humans. Uh, and I'll come back to that later. Um, by the way, around the fire, of course, we also invented the idea of empathy. We've talked a lot about empathy today, um, sharing. We're very good at sharing through food. Uh, as I say, the, the food economy is the most accurate in many ways we've ever invented. And of course, we also evolved language. So really, everything happened around the fire. Now, as I say, there are huge implications for your strategy for how to eat about how we also live. Now, some of you probably recognize this image or rather sort of the mythical image of the Garden of Paradise. Um, of course, this is where in the Bible uh, and uh, indeed in many other cultures as well, not just the Christian Jewish one, uh, we lived um, before we started doing this horrible thing called farming. Um, now, what's very interesting about this is that if you think about it, actually living directly in nature is, is rather wonderful as humans. You're basically what I call living in the larder. You're living in a landscape that feeds you directly. And what's also really interesting is if we look at hunter-gatherer communities today and actually you know, gather evidence from the past, what emerges is the fact that most hunter-gatherers and foragers see the, the land they live in as incredibly bountiful. So this idea of scarcity that we live with today is really an agrarian idea. It doesn't really exist in hunter-gatherer cultures. And again, I'm going to come back to that. Um, and indeed, so there's a sort of also transition um, from living as a hunter-gatherer to living as a farmer, which hist the historical records now show us was very bad in many ways. Um, the, the idea of work actually emerged for the first time. Most hunter-gatherers don't have a concept of work. Um, uh, life, expand life expectancy dropped, people's teeth started falling out because they weren't eating such a varied diet and so on. So there's a reason why farming is, uh, as it were, shown as a punishment in the Bible and as well in other creation myths. Now, of course, all that changed. I mean, I'm, it's ludicrous because I basically do talk about the whole of civilization and I generally get kind of between 15 minutes and, you know, an hour if I'm lucky to do it. So I'm making ludicrous generalizations the whole time. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, but basically, um, roughly speaking, between sort of, uh, let's say, 15 and 12,000 years ago, we started um, domesticating plants and animals, uh, planting plants in the ground. You know, this is obviously the beginning of farming. And also the thing about farming is that once you start to kind of invest uh, effort in a piece of land, there's a reason to kind of stay put and not wander off. So you start to get the beginning of 
static settlements. By the way, static settlements did exist before. This is the complexity, but I'm just I'm just giving you a kind of the main thrust of how um, urban civilization evolved. So and it, 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 there's a book. Sorry, I just have to mention this. A brilliant book by David Graeber and David Wengro called The Dawn of Everything. If any of you read it, you know where I'm suffering here now. By the way, you should all read this book. It's incredible, but it's so much more complex than I have time for. But anyway, in essence, urbanity and farming co-evolved. Um, and if we look at this wonderful, and um, this is actually uh, a drawing of the first excavation of Ur, which is one of the earliest cities on Earth. Um, we notice certain things about it. We notice that it's very small, that's about 500 meters across only. It's uh, on a river. This is in ancient Mesopotamia, by the way. Mesopotamia means between rivers. So this is in modern Iraq. Um, it's very compact. That's a, an example of the residential area. Uh, and it's surrounded by countryside. And very, very simply, it's what I call the fried egg model of urbanity. So basically, the, the, the yolk of the egg is the, the urban bit. The white around it is the countryside that feeds it. And it's kind of a, it's a sort of self-sufficient entity, basically, um, known as a city-state. Um, and of course, the river is crucial because it brings not only water to irrigate the land and actually nourishment for the land, but also allows the city to trade. So actually, the first cities full-blown cities in the world were also, tr they also traded with one another and they grew rich, interestingly, by exporting grain as far afield as India, incredibly. And grain, I should have mentioned, of course, is the primary product of agriculture that allows urbanity to happen because it's very easy to grow in bulk and store easily. So if you look at the temple, which actually organized the harvest every year, you can see this huge urban granary, which was like the bank of the early city, because that's where all the wealth was, because the food was wealth. So really, again, in summary, uh, we're looking at uh, the arrival of complexity, of hierarchy, uh, the invention of writing, you know, a huge amount of stuff, basically because we now have farming feeding cities. And of course, this is the basis of modern urban civilization. Now, you will notice that in the fried egg, you've got two distinct entities. You've got the city and the countryside. This is a crucial development from the position we were just looking at with hunter-gatherers and the foragers, because obviously the hunter-gatherers and the foragers just kind of did their stuff in a territory. There was no, oh, you from the city or the country. So we see the evolution of a duality. Um, now, this is Aristotle you're looking at here, and the reason you're looking at him is because he coined a term, some of you probably know it, he called humans political animals. Do you, have you heard that term, some of you? It's very difficult to see, but anyway, I, I think you're all just kind of, you know, kind of eight hours in. But um, I, I, I certainly would be if I wasn't full of adrenaline. Um, so, <laughs> so I use this term of Aristotle to talk about the inherent duality that we have as urban animals, basically, because we need society, uh, and that's the Athenian agora you're looking at on the left, so we need to be together to be the sum of our parts. But we're animals, so we also need nature. So the dilemma, if you like, of living in a city is how do you bring society and nature together, or how do you ensure that you have access to both of them? And interestingly, this is something that really obsessed both Plato and Aristotle. Um, and they came up with this concept of economia. So economia just means household management. Um, and the idea is that you have a house or every citizen, and by the way, citizens 
is only, as Alice said in her talk, cis white males um, born in the right kind of families and everything, that there were kind of seven other people to every citizen, and they were slaves and women, obviously. Um, but uh, maybe not, obviously, in, in another talk. Anyway, so a house, a house in the city and a farm in the countryside, and the farm feeds the house. And therefore, that is good economia because it's good household management, because you're feeding yourself from the surrounding countryside. And of course, if every citizen has this arrangement, then the city is self-sufficient. And then if the city is self-sufficient, great, because then it can be politically independent, it can be strong, because it doesn't rely on anyone to feed it. Um, and this is an incredibly powerful idea. I mean, if, any, if that word, by the way, looks a bit familiar, it's because it gave us our modern word economy, of course. But interestingly, this economy is based on the capacity of the land to feed a city. Whereas, of course, modern economy is based on something Aristotle warned against called crematistike. I haven't written it up because I wasn't planning to talk about it. But um, basically, which means making money for its own sake, which, if you like, is the opposite of it. So Aristotle said, economia is good because it establishes a natural balance between the city and the countryside, and this is what we need in order to have harmony and balance, and so on. The Greeks were very into harmony and balance. Um, so, but in order to achieve this, the city has to remain small. Critically, because if you think of the geometry, the bigger it gets, you know, the, the more the kind of people in the middle of the yoke can't get to their farm in a day, and it just doesn't work. So there's a limit to how big the city can grow. And if you like the ideal vision of this, some of you may know this incredible um, mural in uh, the Sienese uh, town hall, uh, Ambrogio Lawrence Satie's Allegory, The Effects of Good Government, uh, which really shows this ideal arrangement of the city and the countryside in perfect harmony. Um, it's a kind of extraordinary uh, you know, image in the sense that it's got this kind of what appears to be a big barrier in the middle of it. But actually, if you look closely, it's more of a membrane because you've got kind of people leaving the city to go hunting, you've got you know asses with grain on their backs coming in, you've got sheep wandering around inside the city, you've got women with baskets of eggs on their head, and so on. So what I love about this image is that it basically says, you know, the allegory, the effects of good government are that the city and the country are a sort of symbiotic uh, partnership, and they look after one another. And good government is to ensure that you have that kind of arrangement. Now. As you know, that's not the kind of arrangement most cities have today. In fact, a kind of equivalent probably look more like this. Um, and I call this the urban paradox. So, you know, this is my home city of London. This is probably where a lot of the food for London comes, although you wouldn't know it because, of course, the, the sort of the chain that brings it there is pretty much invisible. Um, but you certainly don't, don't look out of your window in London and see most of the landscapes that feed you. Um, and you're sort of, it's out of sight and out of mind, basically. And if you think about the need for political animals to have access to both society and nature, of course, this kind of arrangement doesn't deliver that at all. You kind of have one or the other, and increasingly, as Liam rather terrifyingly showed us earlier on today, kind of maybe just one. Um, and of course, if we need nature, then if we're farming like this, then we've actually taken nature out of the countryside too. So where, is, where, you know, where are we going to live and how are we going to live? Now, I mean, just to kind of <laughs> summarize and skip what can be a very long and complex story, I'm just going to say that some of the things I've been talking about already are, are obviously that over the last, let's say, two million years, humans have been stalking the Earth. 
we've moved from you know, the invention of the control of fire through to farming, through to the harnessing of fossil fuels as kind of technologies that we can use to help feed ourselves. And of course, as we've been on that technological journey, where we live has also shifted. So we've gone from living in the larder, as I call it, to living mostly in farms. I mean, a stat for you, I'm not a very statty person, but this is a great stat. In 1800, 2% of the global population lived in settlements of 10,000 people or more. So that's 98% living either in nature or on a farm. So it's been a massive shift. As you probably know, sometime around 2006, the world became predominantly urban. And of course, again, we had an amazing session on work today, uh, which I found completely fascinating. We've gone from you know, basically finding our food individually out in nature to a kind of craft-based world where you know, we're working to produce farm, farm products like cheese and so on. And now quite a lot of us kind of do this all day. Um, now. There's obviously a question of where all this is heading, and of course that's been, in a way, the implied question of everything that we've heard about today. You know, so what is the food of the future? Is it lab meat? Some of you've probably heard of, I mean, probably most of you now have heard of this, you know, meat grown in a lab. Is that the way we're going to go? Um, where are we going to live? I, if I'd have seen Liam's talk earlier, I'd have had his <laughs> slide of his vision here. You know, and again, critically, what are we going to do if automation takes over all the stuff that we do now? Um, now, we call this progress, um, and of course it is progress of a kind, but, uh, but it's also kind of anti-progress in a way. And I guess that's sort of what I want to focus on in what I would like to think of as the second half of my talk. And it's not a million miles off, incredibly. That's incredible for me. Now, of course, the thing is, this is not a con contextless journey we've been on. It's not happening on some graph or in a vacuum. It's actually happening on planet Earth. Again, as we've said several times today. Now, the, the kind of the promise and the, the sort of the goal, if you like, of industrialization has really been to solve the problems of how to live. And with respect to food, I mean, those of us old enough to remember, you know, maybe this is kind of late 20th century and, you know, when Oh, well, in the UK, for example, um, Marks and Spencer started making ready meals. By the way, I have another stat for you. This is <laughs> random, but it just shows you where I come from. The UK eats more ready meals uh, than the rest of Europe put together. Just saying. That's where I'm coming from. Anyway, but you know, oh, ready meals, you don't have to think. Uh, and, and so, you know, we've solved the problem of how to feed ourselves. No, we haven't. In fact, I think it's very justifiable to say that Industrial farming is now the most destructive single activity that we humans perform on Earth. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, about a third of global farmland is lost or degraded. Um, about 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions are associated with farming and food production. About 70% of fresh water is used in it. And of course, a lot of that is from non-renewable resources. And I don't know whether some of you saw in the news yesterday that the Yangtze's dried up so that the Chinese can't generate hydropower. I mean, you know, we're living in very uncertain times. Um, two billion people uh, around the world are overweight or obese, and of course, a further billion don't have enough to eat, and of course, we also have diet-related disease. I've put our furry friend in here because basically, actually, of course, zoonotic pandemics are also a product of the way we farm now because we're reducing diversity and we're kind of encroaching on wilderness where we didn't ought to be. Uh, we waste a vast amount of the food we produce. Why? Because we don't value it. 
because this is all a model that says food is cheap. And as I explained at the beginning, food is life. So if you treat food as cheap, you're treating life as cheap. And that's literally what we've been doing. We're spending about a third, we're feeding about a third of our grain harvest to animals. Uh, we're spending about 10 calories of energy for every calorie we consume. This is all in the industrialized system, by the way. Um, and in chemically farmed areas in Europe, we're seeing a sort of something like a 15% decline in bird and insect life, which is fantastically worrying when you realize how joined up all this is. So there is no such thing as cheap food. We haven't solved the problem of how to feed ourselves. And as we've been hearing today in various ways, we haven't solved the problem of how to live either. Um, and the bad news is it's all kind of going in this direction. The world's turning into a hamburger. Why? I mean, again, I would need to talk twice the length, but in essence, you know, politicians, I mean, briefly I spoke about it with the city of Ur when I said the temple organized the harvest. So in the pre-industrial city, political leaders and authorities took care to feed people. That was seen as their primary objective. Um, but as soon as the industry came along, food industries came along, they went, Phew, gosh, thank goodness I don't have to think about that anymore, handed responsibility to the likes of Tesco and Nestle and, you know, Archer Daniels, Midland and Monsanto. And we know where that led. Um, so there's a lot of profit in feeding people because we have to eat. So this is a, a model with a huge amount of inner, uh, inertia. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, now, this is, a <laughs> this is an English architect who didn't actually build very much, um, probably because he thought too much, but he's a man after my own heart, Cedric Price. And he has this quote, again, some of you may know it, I love this quote, technology is the answer, but what was the question? <laughs> I mean, isn't it, isn't it perfect? What is the question? What are we trying to do? Okay. Well, the short answer, of course, it's the same question we've been asking for two million years. How do we eat? How do we live? How do we organize society? How do we live in balance with nature? Just, you know, how do we live a good life? What's interesting is that there is a strain of thinking about this in a very, very interconnected way. It's called utopianism. Um, and indeed, here we have the Greeks, Plato this time. Yeah, we have Thomas More in the 16th century in the UK. We have Ebenezer Howard also in the UK. There's, there is a reason for that, by the way, because we had a big, hairy city called London that everybody got really kind of upset about because it was too big, too greedy, and too powerful. So they're always looking at ways of breaking it up. What's interesting about utopianism is that, you know, in every case, what they're really trying to do is balance what I call the urban paradox. They're trying to find a way of bringing society and nature together, of bringing the city and the country together. Um, keep the city small and link it up in a network. Keep the city small, link it up in a network. Um, and the same, but with railways. So Thomas More, I mean, that's basically what the Garden City is. They all talk about the fried egg, and it's all about how do you get enough mass of humanity near enough that you can have, for example, a decent symphony orchestra, but at the same time, you're close to nature. So that's what we're all trying to do. However, as probably some of you know, utopia is a kind of trick word. It can either mean a good place, because the U can either come from the Greek word for good, or no place. So basically, utopia is ideal, and therefore it can't exist. Now, I remember when I was researching my first book and I read that, and I found that incredibly depressing, 
Because I thought, well, we need utopian, we need hope. We are, you know, what's your, again, the question to Liam, where's your hope? We need hope. We need to be able to think about these things in a kind of interconnected way where we can actually get answers um, and uh, utopia can't exist. And this is, of course, why I went Greek with Sitopia, because I realised, ah, oh, but we live in a world shaped by food, our bodies, our minds, our moods, our cities, our habits. Our politics, our economics, our landscapes, our climate, all shaped by food. So why don't we use food as a way of asking all the questions we need to ask? What is a good life? How can we organise society? How can we balance our lives with nature? Now, again, there's a, an infinity of ways you can approach this. But I mean, one, I mean I'm, I'm an architect, basically, so I, I can only understand things if I can see them. So I tend to draw <laughs> the horrible diagrams. You know, I don't have any of the flashy graphics of some of the other speakers today. But, um, you know, just if you imagine food as a sort of flow going through our lives, you know, every day from the land or the sea to the road to the city to the market to the kitchen to the table to the waste dump and out again, that's what it's like. And of course, every one of those stages, we have choices. You know, if we are going to eat meat, do we? Uh, and by the way, the reason we curvels with cattle, I know they, they, they kind of burp and fart, and that's a real problem now. But I mean, you know, the reason we curvel with them is that they can eat grass and we can't eat grass. So there were always reasons why we did things in the past. Or are we going to feed them grain? We could be eating directly. That's a concentrated animal feeding operation. So that's 100 and, you know, roughly 100,000 animals eating grain, getting sick, because they're not designed to eat grain. They actually, they're designed to eat grass, or they evolved, I should say, to eat grass. I don't know whether Alice would call it design. We'll have to discuss that later. Um, and, you know, so they get sick, so we pump them from the antibiotics, they're all completely mad. Um, do we sort of animate the city? Do we actually, again, if you were in the body and well-being talk just now, uh, we had ever talking about, you know, people actually going into the city and having a reason to be in public space. I'm a big fan of public space. You know, we need diversity, we need heterogeneity, we need to sort of actually, as we said at the beginning, Joanna said in her introduction, actually meet physical people. And food used to do that. Food used to be the thing that brought us out of our houses into the street, or in the name of convenience, do we just drive to a box, or of course now just dial up a curry on our phone at two in the morning and some slave in a lime green suit just kind of, you know, I mean, I just, anyway, um, do we take time for food? Do we take time to, you know, talk to people while we're eating? You know, this moment, this great convulsive moment out of which our entire species evolved. Or are we too busy for that? Because uh, we've got far more important things to do. I mean, again, another stat. I, I said I wasn't into stats, but I obviously am. Know thyself. Um, before the pandemic, one of my favourite stats, one in five meals in America was being eaten in a car. I'll just, I'll just let that rest for a moment. You know, the question of where are we going with this? So these solutions to feeding ourselves, they obviously feed down into this bigger question, which is, what is a good life? How are we going to live? Now, of course, there are competing paradigms for thinking about this. Um, I've got a couple here. Have any of you heard of Soylent? Have you? Okay, you know, it's this food replacement sludge. You know, so you basically invented by a kind of a, wire, a wireless designer, mask designer in the US called Rob Breichart. Bright guy, 
you know, he was eating rubbish, you know, trying to design these incredibly complex things. And he sort of thought, hang on, I'm a bright guy. Surely I can kind of invent something better than this. Invented, you know, just looked up online, what do bodies need, uh, blah, 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 nutrients, nutrients, sort of ordered them online, mixed them together, you know, bit of oil, pfft, stuck it down. Nearly kills himself about three times because he got the, the, you know, got the numbers wrong, forgot to put zinc in. <laughs> Seriously, uh, it's completely fascinating. Anyway, um... So this is basically the ultimate life hack. You know, I don't have to eat anymore. I'm just <laughs> sorted. Or do we actually want to use the fact that we have to eat as an opportunity to do stuff that has meaning? Now, we had a lot of interesting conversation again in the work session about, you know, what, what are we all going to do when the robots come kind of thing? Well, we have to eat. And actually, as many of us discovered under lockdown, if you have time, and space, you can make, I know it's a cliche, but you can make your own sourdough. And the thing is, sometimes cliches have truth in them too. So, you know, there's a kind of paradigm, it's a kind of opposite paradigm. You know, a good life is about, you know, kneading your bread, going, oh, I hate you, I hate you, or whatever, or just gliding around looking gorgeous and drinking sludge. Now, I mean, the interesting thing is that these, uh, these different ideas actually come from real philosophies. So there is Rob Reichart, nice-looking lad, the inventor of Soylent. He's got a packet of it there. Now, this is, this is literally my favorite quote to do with food. I love this. Okay. Worrying about something as simple as food in the digital age is weird. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? That tells you everything you need to know about what I call the techno mindset. You know... Food, uh, simple. He nearly killed himself three times. It's not simple. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, this is Epicurus. I'm, I'm, I don't know why I've got so many Greeks. I need the Buddha here. The Buddha would be just as good, or better, actually. You know, but Epicurus said self-sufficiency is freedom. What did he mean by that? He meant... Uh, and he's one of the most misunderstood philosophers in history, by the way, Epicurus. I mean, I've only got two minutes left, so I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but... Well, maybe four, because I think I got an unofficial extension, but um, <laughs> negotiated beforehand. Um, basically, he said, you know, our bodies are made for pleasure, so surely a good life is one in which we just do the stuff that our bodies reward us for doing, like eating and pooing and walking and drinking and so on. And he said, you know, doing that gives you the greatest pleasure you're ever going to get. So it's a kind of back to basics, you know, embracing necessity thing. Um, and again, polar opposites in terms of what constitutes a good life. Epicurus is misunderstood, by the way, because he's normally seen as a hedonist. Oh, Epicureanism is, oh, oh, delicious wine and everything. No, he was against wine. This guy, he was a kind of, he was bread and waterer enough because the pleasure you get when you're really hungry and thirsty cancel everything else out. He, so he's pretty hardcore. But there are so many other questions to ask as well. You know, who, who, owns the who owns the food we eat? Who owns us? You know, we are made of food. By the time you're about 25, there's no atom in your body you were born with anymore. It's all made up of meals you've eaten. So some of us are just pot noodles, but you know. Um, and, and that explains a lot, actually. But, um, you know, so for example, Pazi Vainaka, of, you know, he's the guy who's using sunlight to kind of ferment uh, protein uh, out of microbes. And, uh, you know, it's, it, certain environmentalists are getting very excited by this. It is potentially exciting, but it's a long way to go. Or, you know, is this actually, in some ways, a better life? We don't have a corporation making stuff in a lab and feeding us. We're actually just feeding ourselves, as we've done for centuries. Uh, interestingly, two billion of us still do this.
Now, the pandemic, we talked about it a lot already, but I mean, I think some very interesting insights came out of it. Um, you know, what were the things that we both suffered from in the pandemic, but we also loved and embraced? Very, very obviously this, not being able to hug people we loved. Wasn't that just horrible? And again, Joanna said, you know, if we were losing someone, if they were dying, it was horrible suffering. But also access to nature. I mean, how many of us were stuck in a horrible little flat and just kind of, you know, one little leaf of a sort of basil plant or something was kind of, you know, became this incredibly precious thing. You know, this business of where we actually live, so this, this image from New Delhi fascinates me. Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic? You know, there were millions of Indians who were working in cities but actually lived in the countryside, and this huge exodus uh, occurred. So it, it was an incredible, exposed incredible imbalances in our lives. Uh, again, another extraordinary image from Bangkok. This is delivery, those mint slaves I was talking about, you know, kind of sitting, waiting to take food to people who can afford not to go out. Um, so incredible inequalities exposed as well. But of course, there was the flip side. So I've got my cliched bread, but I mean, in this case, the bread is actually made by a neighbor and left on your doorstep. One of my neighbors in the early days of the lockdown brought me, this, you know, the doorbell went, I'm not expecting anyone, and the pandemic on, who could it possibly be? Um, neighbor, no, we barely speak normally. Would you like some courgette bread? I just made it. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, things are really changing here. Um, amazing examples from around the world. I mean, this one really struck me in India, um, where there were these kind of visiting health workers that, that visit people anyway. They started bringing them food and so on. They became sort of general carers, and it was an incredibly successful model, actually. Um, obviously, the idea of resilience, growing your own. Um, and of course, when you have time, you can start doing things like having meals with your kids. Uh, and again, in the work session, we talked a lot about the fact that people have just decided that, you know, they look back on the way they were living before the pandemic and thinking, I don't want to go back to that. You know, why was I sort of spending four hours on a hot, sweaty can going back and forth to the city to get rich? It's insane. So we're just in this moment now, in a moment of realizing that status quo ante, as, as Boris Johnson would say, because he bleh, speaks Latin, Sorry, I can't believe I mentioned Boris Johnson. Sorry, I just, it's a, it's like, it's like acid, acid, acid in my stomach. But anyway, other, Latin's easy. Yeah, don't be impressed. Um, but you know, just the idea that, that whatever it was we were doing before, we don't want that anymore. Okay, so what do we actually want? I am going to finish fairly soon. Sorry, whoever's in charge of time. Um, now, here's the interesting bit. This is the bit that, in a way, is quite new to me. It's very, very clear that biologically, we are still hunter-gatherers, or rather, we're still the people we were, you know, evolved for millions of years, and we've only been living in cities for about five. So, biologically, we're basically still those people. Now, if we look at hunter-gatherers, and as I say, there's a lot of research coming out now, about hunter-gatherer life that is really turning all our preconceptions on its head. And here are some of the things. If you think about what being a hunter-gatherer means, there's a load of things you can say about it. Very close communities, incredible health. You, we, we're now discovering about the microbiome. Well, I mean, the average Hadza, for example, eats about 300 different foods a week. So their microbiomes are just super, super powered. You know, they're just, just and, and of course the microbiome is the, is the core of our health and of our uh, immune system. So they have incredible health. They are in nature, so that's tick. Um, they collaborate. So they have, uh, we were talking again about empathy a lot earlier. Natural empathy, collaboration. 
every hunter-gatherer knows how to be a hunter-gatherer because it's pre-division of labor. I mean, okay, we have the hunting and the cooking thing, but I mean, generally, there's a hugely high level of individual skill and capacity. So there's agency, there's self-reliance, and of course, once you have agency and self-reliance, you can have collaboration. Because actually, do I want you on my team? Oh yeah, you can do all that. Yeah, I want you on my team. Um, sorry, I don't know, again, what, what was that? That's kind of throwback to being chosen for netball when I was about 10. Um, <laughs> sorry, welcome. Um, Meaning. Now, what is meaning in life? It's actually about encountering the world directly. It's about being a human in the world. I often say, you know, if that, if that is a human and that's the world, that's what a good life looks like. How do we map onto the world? And, you know, if you're a hunter-gatherer, if you're living directly in the world, if you're looking after your own life every day, if you're feeding yourself, if you're saving yourself from being attacked, there's, there's meaning everywhere. And of course, there's also meaning in the landscape. That's Uncle Fred or equivalent. You know, you, the, the, the many hunter-gatherers actually see the landscape as their family or their ancestors. Oh, the forest is my mother. So incredible sense of place and belonging. Agency, as I said, so it's democratic, usually, not always. Uh, everyone has a voice. And time, last but not least, what does capitalism do? <laughs> It destroys time, because time, as Benjamin Franklin said, is money. I'm here to tell you time is not money. Time is life. Money is a fiction, and not a very helpful one. Anyway, so we're living in this kind of weird philosophical world. What can we do about it? Well, obviously, I'm not going to suggest we all go back to being hunter-gatherers. That's not possible. Probably at the height of the pre-farming era, there were about 10 million humans on the planet, so that's not going to happen. But actually, these things are so fundamental, we can find them in our modern lives. So all the titles here are the same. We do it differently. We eat together. That's the same because you know, we still need to eat diversity and wildness. We can be close to nature. That's actually a farm in London I'm involved with called Cytopia Farm, I'm rather thrilled to say. We can, by growing food, we can get close to nature if we do it organically, if we don't destroy nature in order to grow the frankenfoods. We can still collaborate. Again, that's a, that's a coffee farm uh, in Kenya. We can be self-reliant. I've got a guy mending a bike here. It could easily have been someone baking bread, of course, but I don't want to get too hidebound by my, my images. Um, meaning, well, feeding people is nothing more meaningful than that. This is actually the amazing uh, Farinatria, sorry, no. Um, the uh, global uh, food guys who are feeding Ukrainians at the moment, incredible people. Um, a sense of place and belonging. Well, we can have that in our cities too. And food is just a natural place to do it. I mean, what I've got up here is the market in Preston, uh, which is a city in Lancashire, which is about to be demolished to create a mall, but they decided, no, we're going to restore it instead. And it's brought a huge amount of sense of you know, thriving and nourishment back to the city and a sense of a, you know, being part of a place you can have pride in again. Agency, well, we need pl new political systems. I mentioned that person earlier. You know, our politics are very sick. We need new ways of engaging in politics. Uh, and we can do that, for example, citizens' assemblies and so on. Dwelling in time. I mean, I, by the way, do you, <laughs> I make acia. I grow acia on my roof. Um, Danish pickling cucumbers, basically. Um, and I pickle every year. Now, I mean, just by doing something like that, you're actually aligning yourself to the seasons and to earthly cycles and so on. 
Now, not all of these images are about food, but quite a lot of them are. And actually, all of them really could be. And this is the power of food, because we have to eat. And because food is inherently meaningful, because food is life, and to feed somebody is to show love, and to feed yourself is to sort of engage in you know, our relationship with plants, and with nature, and with the planet. It's just, it could not be more powerful. Um, a kind of quick, and I know I'm horribly over, I do apologise. It always happens, by the way. Well, we'll have to talk to Martin about that later. But, um, <laughs> but um, th here it is in a nutshell. You know, that's cheese, and in fact, that was cheese in Britain in 1917. That's what British cheese looks like today. Same stuff, let's eat cheese or let's not eat cheese. But, you know, do you want to make it like it's a breeze block, or could that be 650 different farms and different lives and different bits of landscape being looked after? There is no silver bullet, of course, there never is, because through history you found different ways of living in different landscapes, feeding ourselves very differently and therefore living very differently. There's this wonderful term, terroir, that the French uh, evolved for their vineyards, and basically if the hill's like that or like that, it's a difference between 20 quid a bottle and 200 or whatever it is. I mean, it's you know, incredibly highly detailed. But it also shows we're incredibly adaptable and incredibly diverse, and there's many, many ways we can find of living on the planet. It's coming back to economia, and my proposal actually is that we internalize the true cost of food. And my goal is that we create a society in which everyone can eat well. Now, these are revolutionary ideas because they actually involve tax reform and land reform, which is the two barriers on which every revolutionary idea in history is founded. I do realize that. But the great thing about Zootopia is that we're already living in it. We're just living in a bad one because we don't value food. And when I say we, by the way, you're better here, much better here in Sweden than we are in the UK. And I'm, I, I, I say it's a very loose we. Um, but if you don't protect your, exact, you know, your existing food culture and the, the, the way you value food, then the UK, I'm just holding up the UK as an example of where you're going to end up. You're all going to be this big um, and none of you are going to know how to cook and you're going to be in the same place we are. So don't let it happen. But that food flow I was talking about, at every stage of it, there's so much we can do. Local infrastructure, if we're going to eat meat, you know, and there are arguments for still having animals on the back of a plant-based system. If you farm organically, long story, probably not time for it now. Community-supported agriculture, uh, which is basically city people paying farmers to feed them. Supporting markets, this is planning, this is design, back to Alice again. Uh, teaching kids to cook, vital. I can't think of anything more important than knowing how to feed yourself. This is like how to keep yourself alive. Um, you know, supporting small family businesses in uh, bigger infrastructures, for example, as in the food courts of Singapore. And of course, just eating together, uh, growing food in the city. You know, and, and there's an infinity of things I could have shown you here. Here's my last slide. Great. <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> it's just a kind of, and I don't have flashy graphics, as you can tell, and I can't draw people. But this is a slide that shows that from a bowl of soup or muesli in front of you is the universe. That's it. The universe is in your bowl of soup. And by choosing to eat consciously and deciding what you put in that bowl and to feed each other with love and to understand that it connects you to society and to nature and to everything that matters on the planet, every other living being, because we eat together with humans and non-humans, you can create a better world through food, 
which is what I call you know, the best possible Zootopia, which is surprisingly close to Utopia. Uh, and thank you very much. And if you want to know more, it's all up there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. <laughs>